You're listening to Wake Up Call. I'm your host, Christina Kretz. If we haven't met before, I was a divorce lawyer in New Jersey for 15 years. I'm currently the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a divorce law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I'm talking to people who have overcome their fears and forged their own path in life. They had a wake-up call to make a radical change. They did it, and so can you. My guest today is Denny Mendez. Denny is a financial strategist at Dayton and Sydney Wealth Strategies Group. Denny works with individuals, families, small businesses, and corporations to help them meet their financial goals. Denny understands financial struggle. Denny grew up in an immigrant household with very limited financial means. His family only knew to work, pay bills, and stash money under the mattress. He came to realize that many people, regardless of their success, are exactly the same. They know they should be doing more, but they don't know what that more is. Denny is here to share personal stories about how he grew up and became the person he is today. Thank you, Denny, for joining us. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. I couldn't help but hear you laughing as I was introducing (laughs) you. Why is that? No real reason. I (laughs) usually don't get introductions that lovely. Well, so we're going to go into um, more of your personal background and not not exactly dollars and cents, which is probably what you're used to talking about. Yes. But um, I know you personally. Yes. And so we've had some conversations about what you grew up as, you know, what you came from. And I think sometimes when we meet people who are success, (laughs) we kind of assume that we make assumptions about yes, what they came from, absolutely. right? We assume that their parents were a success. I'm using that in finger quotes. <laughs> that they were a success too. And that, you know, you, you came... Had it easy. Yeah, that you had it easy, really. Um, and you didn't. Not at all. So I want to talk about that. That, to me, that's the juicy stuff. Ooh, okay. So I, um, when I stalked you on the internet, I saw that you um, came from an immigrant family. So why don't you... T- let's start there. Okay, so my parents came here from the Dominican Republic in the 70s. Um, Moved into Queens. I actually grew up in Queens, so I've known Queens my entire life. You know, moved right into apartment buildings, which is, you know, still what I feel comfortable in. And my parents came here with not knowing anything about this country, not knowing the language, not knowing how the system works. They just came here and started working. My dad in restaurants, my mom in factories. And, you know, that's how we grew up. And they had zero education as far as how this country worked. In their country, they did okay as far as education is concerned. But when they came here, they're just like any other immigrant, go straight to blue-collar work, and all they cared about was paying the bills. What did your dad do? My dad worked in restaurants. What did he do? So he worked in restaurants. He just behind the counter, serving, things of that nature. Um, He actually ended up doing okay for a while, and he actually opened up his own restaurant at one time. Yes. Um, But... Again, if you know how to work in a restaurant, doesn't mean you know how to run a restaurant. So he opened it, did okay for a while, but made some bad business decisions, and it closed down. What kind of restaurant was it? Spanish food. Oh, nice. So if you wanted to get chubby, this is where you came. (laughs) Yeah, well, we all struggle (laughs) with that a little bit here and there. Um, So, And then did he just go back to working for restaurants? Yes. Then after that, um, after the restaurant closed down, he actually ended up leaving the country and went to the Dominican Republic. Um, He stayed there for a couple of years and worked in, actually, auto parts. So he did auto parts for a while, so completely different industry. Why did he go back? He just was looking for opportunities. 
And that was it. Your mom stayed here. She stayed here. So, were, are they still married? They are still married now. Yes, um, they did go through a difficult time period, which. As you can imagine, he left the country. She stayed here with the kids. So that was a rough time in our family. And, yeah, so I was basically the man of the house for a couple of years. And you have siblings? I do, a younger brother and a younger sister. So you were sort of the man of the house then? I was. I was the one that told my sister she couldn't go out and hang out. No dates? Not at all. Not in my house. (laughs) (laughs) And how old were you when your dad left? A teenager. I was a teenager. Late teens, I would say. So what were you learning about money when you when that happens, when the business failed? So in our households, we didn't really speak about money unless it was to fight about it. So I think a lot of people can, especially if you come from limited means, you can probably attest to that, where a lot of fights, especially if they were about money, it was about, hey, you got to pay the rent, you got to pay this, why are you spending money here, there? So it was a lot of fighting over money in my house. Now, one thing that I learned was that I didn't want to grow up that way. There's yeah. no way I want to fight about money when I have my own household. Yeah. So I'll say we both came from humble beginnings. That's how I like to say it. But my my father wasn't around, so I didn't necessarily hear fighting about money because it was my mom making all the decisions. But what I did hear a lot was we don't have money for that. Absolutely. You know, whatever it was, we don't have money for that. So I did, you know, I grew up aware that we didn't have money. Yes. I don't know if where your family fell oh, same on the thing. spectrum. Same thing. So would would you say that you grew up poor? I wouldn't say poor. I would say lower middle class, upper. It wasn't, I wouldn't say exactly poor. We weren't going hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, but we weren't the ones with the nice things. We always had old cars. I mean, like. I remember the newest car we had was probably sometime in the 80s, and that car ended up getting smashed in the street by, like, a drunk driver. So we always had, like, just crappy cars growing up. We didn't really go out to many places. So I was aware of that, but, you know, because I was so used to it, I wasn't really like, oh, we're poor. It was just like, hey, this is this is my life. And a lot of my friends grew up that way. Yeah. So it wasn't just me. So it wasn't like you were, were you like on the outskirts of a rich neighborhood where you're seeing the, you know, BMWs go by? Not really, but you know where I did? I grew up in Queens. So if you know the seven train that goes right into Met Stadium. So the seven line was kind of like the divider. So we were on the one side of the seven line where it was all the buildings and the other side of the seven train was the actual houses so people that had houses the you know two parent families with the nice cars so it was like that was a divider you literally walk five minutes and you see the nice cars yeah so you were aware of that oh yes we were definitely aware i mean anybody who watches television knows that you know there's rich people right oh of course that you definitely knew yeah definitely rich people around so then so you grew up did you grow up kind of feeling like I'm going to make money when I grow up. I definitely had that on my mind. Like, I have to make money when I get older because, you know, I did not, again, I didn't want to grow up in a household where there was arguments about cash. And if I wanted something, I wanted to do it. The one thing I didn't want was limited options. Yeah. So when did you start working? When I was 15. Actually, I started working at 15 in the restaurant with my dad. And that was more of a punishment. So when I was growing up in the street and, you know, doing just bad things and getting into trouble, my dad's like, all right, you got to work with me. And working in the restaurant with my dad is the one thing I learned was 
I never want to work in the restaurant business. I hated it. I, my clothes smelled. It was always late. I used to get home at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning as a 15-year-old and still go to school. Yeah, so that's rough. I hated it. So I was like, I got to do something else. <laughs> Just well, not the food industry. Let's go back to why you started working there in the first place because you have told me a couple stories um, you know, on the side that you were <laughs> not always the good, honest person that you are now. Well, maybe deep down you were, but I would say I've always been a good kid, but I grew up in you know a area where the guys that had the money were the drug dealers. Mm-hmm. So if you had nice cars, those guys were not working. Those guys were you know in the street doing whatever they do, or professional gamblers. A lot of professional gamblers where I grew up, and not going to Vegas. They were going to like these little bodegas in the store and doing these thousand dollar bets like some place where you needed a special knock or something special knock or you had to know somebody like yeah. they did i couldn't just walk in or you couldn't just walk in because they're like oh christina's a cop mm-hmm. no we just sell milk in here we don't do any of that stuff so those are the guys that had the money growing up so you know sometimes you're like okay i don't have this these guys have this i want to try to do some of the street things if you will and there was a time, especially in the 80s, crack was really epidemic. I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure you remember that era. And in my area, it was very prevalent. Crack and heroin was really big. So the, the funny thing is I grew up about three minutes away from a police precinct. So the police would always come to our neighborhood because I lived in a dead end. And, like, I mean, they were busting heads five times a week. They were just coming. Like, if you're in the corner, we're arresting you. I don't care what the re- reason is. If you don't have ID, we're going to arrest you. So those are the things that I was getting into trouble where my older friends were actually getting arrested and, you know, staying a week or a month in jail. I was so young. So they were like, all right, you're going to do one day. So my dad's like, we can't hang out here. You're going to come with me to the Bronx. And So were you actually like providing coverage for these guys? (laughs) Not (laughs) providing. I don't know how you say it. (laughs) Not providing coverage. It was just like, you know, whatever they needed. Really? So what did you do? It could be anything. It could just say, hey, the you know, cops are on the corner. It could be lookouts. It could be mm. deliveries. It could be dropping things off. Wow. It could be anything. They recruit you really young. And the thing is you want, you want to be in that life because you're like, okay, my family of five is living in a one-bedroom, and these guys have you know, a five-bedroom with really nice cars. I'm going to do what they do. They look like me. They speak like me. Why can't I do the same thing? So how much did you, they pay you? It really depends, you know. And I so it's twenty years ago. I mean, with fifty or a hundred bucks, you'd be happy. They just hand you some cash. That's it. And you were excited about You're that. Like, oh yes, I'm doing big things. But you know, to that, I mean, fifteen years old, you got a hundred bucks. You think you're, you're yeah? Balling. I'd be happy with a hundred bucks now. So, you see, there you go. But did your dad? He kind of figured out what was going on. My dad knew this. He was not part of the street, but he knew the street life pretty well. So he's like, we got to get this kid away from this, this area, away from the friends and go into a neighborhood that he doesn't know anybody. But the funny thing is in the neighborhood where the where the restaurant was, was just was worse than where I grew up because the Bronx was even worse than where I was. But the thing is, I didn't know anybody, so I couldn't really hang out there. The, only, the few times I tried to hang out with the guys in the Bronx, like I was getting into fights, and they were like, you're not from here. You're going to stay on that side. We're going to stay on this side. So and what did your – did you grow up there, like right through high school? All through high school. Okay. So you made friends in the neighborhood that oh, you grew up with. Absolutely. So when you started doing the restaurant gig – I don't know how long did you do that. You <laughs> very, do that very, very short. And then what would you do? So I was still in school. 
So I'll tell you a very pivotal moment in my life. When I was in high school, there was this thing called a co-op program. And the co-op program was that you go to school for one week and you go to work for one week. It's kind of like teaching kids how to get into corporate America and how to get into the working force. And this mm-hmm. was like, I must have been like 16, 17 years old. So I remember I joined this program because my older friends were doing it. And they're like, oh, they're working. At least they have money to buy sneakers and clothes. That's what I wanted. So what? That summer, and I that summer when I right before high school, it was my junior year going into my senior year. I actually had to take like a resume writing course, how to dress. Like, I mean, I never tucked in my shirt, so it was like super, super basic. And I remember the very first interview I went on, I was 16 years old. The very first interview I went on, I didn't get chosen for the job. So I remember going to the program director of my high school and i was like screw this this is not for me just put me in regular school this damn job crap i'm not gonna get no job and she begged me she literally begged me to give it another chance and that second job that second interview i went to was my first job on wall street no as a 16 year old you know it was in the mail room but she's the one that really pushed me i said you need to try again if you don't get it don't worry about it you can go to regular school but i need you to do this a lot of people started out in the mail room there you go that's how it was that lady really was so supportive and she was like an older white lady and she was going to school i mean she was running the program in our high school we stayed friends after school that i ended up going to that lady's funeral because if it wasn't for her forget about it who knows where i would have been so then what did you learn in the mail room well, in the mailroom, I learned nothing, that I could be a slacker <laughs> still well, get a check. didn't you get exposure, though, to other yes. things going on in the building? Because you get to go through the entire building. Everybody's getting Absolutely. mail, Absolutely. Right? So I worked in one department. I didn't do the mailroom for the entire building. I just did the mailroom for one department. But there I met one of my very first mentors. So that is another thing that changed, you know, kind of took me into a different path because where I grew up, like the aspirations for where I grew up was you should be a doorman because hey doormen they have unions they have benefits or you should be you should work for the train system something along a union job like that was your aspiration like if you're going to go to college your aspiration should be to try to be, get into the union because union is, is considered safe you got yeah. a pension you get your mm-hmm. social security Dead. so no such thing as the opening businesses nothing of that nature so Again, when I got my first job in the mailroom, I was thinking, look, I got the same thing. I'm going to try to get a job in the mailroom. Or, excuse me, as a doorman because doorman gets such great bonuses or tips during December. That's how small my thinking was. And then I met this guy, and this guy was from Queens as well. He's from Jamaica, um, from Guyana. And he was dressing really well. He had a really nice house. He had a really nice car. And I was like, man, how the hell did this guy do this? And I thought the same thing. Oh, if you're doing well, that means your parents did well. Yeah. That means you got a nice little push. You got a from free ride. You got a free ride, but it wasn't the case. He grew up hard knocks. He took a huge liking into me. I have no idea for what reason, but he took a huge liking. He was like, "What are you wasting your time in the mailroom? You're too smart for this. Come join me on the trading desk because it was a stock. It was a stock trade. So while I was actually in college." I was studying for my Series 7 and my life and health on my own. I wasn't taking classes for that. I was just like, just give me the books, and I'm going to try to learn it on my own. And I ended up acing the classes and acing the tests, and I got from the mailroom to the trade desk. And that's how I started my financial planning career. Was that really the first time you had ever considered financial planning? Yes. And it wasn't even considering it in the sense like, oh, I really need to get into this. I was just like, man, this guy's doing well. Like, why not try it? 
But then as I started learning more about like the financial culture, that's really what took my interest because it was like I saw one side of the world where they get so much education and I'm not going to call it a free ride because it's really not. They just know what to do. They're like, hey, yeah. if you choose this path, you go down this road. If you choose this path, you're going to go down that road where we didn't have that education. Like you said in the beginning, my parents paid bills and put money in the mattress, literally put money in the mattress. Yeah, They used to put it in, in socks in my house because they were like, I don't trust banks. An IRA, you talk to them in IRA, is like you're speaking to them in Japanese. They have no idea what that is. So it was like I saw this huge just educational divide between these two worlds. That's when I really started getting more focused into the financial planning aspect because I was like, why not teach these people well, these guys already know. Yeah, it's almost like you're bridging the gap. That's it's, what I was trying to do. Yeah, it's like, because I think you do in some way, in like a weird way, you inherit what whatever the financial thinking was of your family. Absolutely. So, you know, my I grew up poor. You know, nobody was thinking about buying stock or financial planning or anything like that. And I so I didn't learn that from my family. I, we could talk about me on another show. We're here to talk about you. I'm interested. <laughs> but um, so you kind of had to learn like almost like a new language. Like a That's new way exactly to think. what it was. Like I had to learn exactly what stocks were, what bonds were, what debt was, good debt versus bad debt. My mom's very first stock account, she opened it with me. Oh, that's Very great. First that's wonderful. I was just going to ask you, how did your family respond to this new Danny? In the beginning, it was... It was more like, oh, you should, again, go be a doorman. What are you doing wasting your time doing this? Like, this right, is, they saw it as a waste of time. They were like, this is for other people. This is not for us. Like, this is for people with money. They couldn't see that it was an educational learning curve. And, I mean, I tried to get my mom to open up a stock account since, like, my 20s. And it took, like, 10 years for her to finally say, all right, let me start investing. Let me see what this investing is all about. And now she's happy about it. Yeah. But it was a huge learning curve. Again, I was her, her her child, so she was like, what does this guy know? I'm the mom. I know more than this guy. He should be putting money in the socks in the drawer. Yeah. But Well, that's safe. That's what they think is safe. Absolutely. So whatever your, your mind has been trained to believe is safe, that's what you do. And that's the thing. People flee, you know, they fled to safety, especially when things go bad. I have a client right now who they came from Austria and they came, you know, during like World War Two, that's like where her mom came from, and they had a lot of money, and they got basically wiped out during the war. So when they came to this country, it was just like stash, 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 safety first, because we don't know what can happen in this country. They might take everything again. Yeah. So it wasn't until the matriarch passed away that the daughter inherited the money that she was like, okay, I got to start doing something with all this cash because it's just sitting here doing nothing. And she started doing investing. And she's been my client for almost 10 years now. Good thing that 10 years of investing, she's done really well. But again, you're talking about her mom had the cash and it was just like, I got to stash everything away because yeah. of her thinking from to protect it. Yeah. From 80 years ago. Yeah. Well, my grandmother is 94 and she grew up in the depression and she has that attitude. That, Absolutely. You know, you Safety don't, first. Right. You, I mean, she'll, she has a bank account, but she doesn't <laughs> invest. I mean, she's not doing anything beyond yeah. that. And her also, her attitude about life insurance is very interesting because they, they don't have life insurance. They oh. just don't believe in that as to replace income. Yeah. So it, it's interesting to see how the generations have evolved. Absolutely. In, in our community, when I say our community, I mean like the more, the you know, lower income community, they, they see life insurance almost as like a scam. 
Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, exactly. I'm, this that's, is this is an expense. I don't. I don't. I don't. They're need just trying insurance. to take your money. That's what my grandfather, who has passed, but that's what he always said that insurance. He even health insurance. He thought health insurance was a scam. <laughs> well, there might be some people who think it is, but he thinks any form of insurance is a scam. And it's it's to me it's so crazy when I hear those stories because I'm like I can tell you 50 stories. As to people that didn't take insurance and now they need it. Yeah. I was like, just go online and just find a thousand GoFundMes yeah. for people that had children but no insurance. They passed away prematurely and now what's happening? They're trying to raise money through the public. Yeah. That, yeah. I was like, GoFundMe, that's the insurance. Well, I think the older generation believed that it was just to pay for your funeral expenses yeah. and that's it. That's what it was for in, originally. And that's exactly what it was for. But, you know, it's of course, it's evolved over the last yeah. 150 years. Yeah. So how long have you been a financial advisor, a financial planner? I've been licensed for, oh, my goodness, it has to be like 18 years now. But on the full financial planning side, like dealing with clients, about 10 years. So how did you get into that? You said you started at the trading desk. And yes. then how did you sort of evolve after that? So I started in the trading desk uh, for a firm in, Aust- in Wall Street. And one thing I learned was I hated being in front of a computer. Like, I like being in front of people. I like to have conversations because no three people are going to be exactly alike. Three different backgrounds. Even if you have the same exact job, same exact income, same exact expenses, you still have three different ways of thinking because of how you guys grew up. So as I started learning how to put financial plans together, I realized like, hey, we're putting these financial plans together, but we're putting these people into like cookie cutter molds. Like not everybody's the same. So as I started having conversations with just people outside of the office, I was like, okay, I'd rather speak to the people outside of the office and tailor their plans instead of doing something cookie cutter in front of a screen. So is that largely what you do now is the, is the yes. connections with people? Absolutely. Yeah, because you seem like that's just kind of naturally your thing. It took a wa- it took a while because I'm more of an introvert. Really, you may not think that, but I am a hundred percent an introvert. And but I I like helping people. So to me, the help you know, or at least the need to help, is much stronger than my need to be to myself. I feel like you're kind of like in some weird way, like the eyes in the sky for your clients because you have some celebrity clients and you have wealthy clients. And just from the conversations that we've had, you you kind of mentor them a little bit like don't blow all your money don't go out to dinner and you know buy 20 people dinner and you know try to be flashy you know think about yourself you have to save for yourself because i think you've given an example how you represented a baseball player and they have a relatively short career yes and kind of mentored him not to just blow all his money so that he has it later absolutely so i started with the celebrities i started more in the music industry so i got i ended up getting really lucky and i got one celebrity client that introduced me to a bunch of other ones are you allowed and to say who it is i prefer not to <laughs> okay um but you know the grammy award-winning songwriters song you know singers everything so i've seen them make a lot of money i've seen them lose it all and now make money again so, which is extremely rare when it comes to that industry because you're usually hot for a short time period, then you just fall off, and then whatever you saved while you were hot, that's what you need to live on. So, like MC Hammer, you know, he's broke now. For MC Hammer is a perfect example, right? So, MC Hammer, I think he blew through something like $90 million, which God, is a that's lot so of money. so much money. You know, $90 million is a lot of money, right? It's a lot. You can blow through $90 million in less than a year. How? 
How? In less than a year. Well, I guess I could. Maybe a bad day at Neiman Marcus. So, shopping. That's number one. If You know, you brought up MC Hammer. So, MC Hammer, I think he did a lot of bad investments when it came to racehorses. A racehorse is like a quarter of a million dollars for one horse. Really? For one horse. Oh, I didn't know that. He bought a bunch of horses. Then he bought a huge mansion. And what happens is what people don't realize, this goes for whether you're making 100000 or $100 million. Like, once you get your lifestyle to a certain um, you know, a certain level, you need income to sustain that lifestyle. So if your lifestyle requires $100,000, just throwing numbers out there, you need to bring in that $100,000 forever. And most likely it's going to increase because inflation increase. Yeah. So now imagine if you're a celebrity or you're some sort of ball player and now your lifestyle is a million dollars a year. Now you need to bring in that million dollars for as long as you want to sustain that lifestyle. But what happens is you got one year that you make $5 million, another year you make $10 million, another year you make $20 million. Now you're like, oh, this money's going to come in forever. Now you're not hot anymore. Yeah. Now the money stops coming in. And if you did bad publishing deals or bad um, publishing deals and songwriting deals, then what happens is all that money, every time they play your song on the radio, you're not getting a dollar out of it. Somebody else's. So what now what's happening is you're spending down your cash. Especially if you made bad investments. You're spending now your cash, spending now your cash. Next you know you got two million dollars left. Your lifestyle is a million dollars. You go on two trips, you're broke. But what are these people doing? I mean, if I all of a sudden started making $10 million a year, I, okay. I mean, I could definitely see how you would all of a sudden be like, oh, man, I'm going to buy a better car. I'm going to buy a better house. I'm going to go fr- fly first class everywhere. I'm going to stay at the Ritz. And after a while, it sort of adds up. Is that really how it happens? That's exactly what it is. What people don't realize is the relationship between their assets and their liabilities. You buy a car. Car's a liability. You got to change the oil. You got to maintain the insurance and everything. If you don't have an asset to pay off for that car, then what happens is that now you're spending out your cash. But if you go off and you buy, a, let's say, a real estate investment, you buy a house and that house is spitting off income to pay for that car, guess what? Now you're not spending your money because what you did is you made an investment to pay off for that car. Same thing if you buy a house or even if you want to go on vacation. But people don't really do that. What they want to do is they want to buy the chains. Yeah. They want to buy the watches. And the shoes and the bags and clothes. I had a situation not too long ago where it's a ball player and he wanted to buy a really nice car, $140,000 car, right? We're like, okay, you know, you're making good money. But I was like, this car is pretty expensive. You have maybe another two to three years of making decent income. Decent income over a million dollars. So, like, we got to really focus on what are we going to do after this income stops? Like, what are what kind of investments are we going to make that is basically going to sustain your lifestyle? Because the last thing you want is to live really well for three years. You retire at 32 years old. 32, you're still a kid. You retire yeah. at 32 years old, and now you're like, all right, now I got to sell my car. I got to sell my house. I got to find somewhere to live and really lower your lifestyle. That hurts way more than the come up. You got to work hard for the come up, but yeah. it sucks to have a nice. The come up is easy. Keeping it is the hard part. Yeah. So it sucks to have a nice car, a nice house, and now because you made bad choices, you got to go from a Porsche down to a Civic. Yeah. Go from a mansion down to an apartment. Yeah, but That's you know hard. what? I mean, I th- I think that the challenge of going you know from the porsche to the civic i still think in some weird way there's some kind of challenge with going from the civic to the porsche absolutely because if you don't know how to do that and you can't handle it that's what you end up with is the people that just blow it all and 
and it's just gone. Absolutely. The the most important thing that I do is I tell people I teach people how much things actually cost. Because this guy is looking at his Porsche. I'm going to use the same example, right? He's looking at his Porsche and he's sending me pictures of the Porsche. Like, I want this one, I want this one, I want this one. You know, try to find me the best deal, right? Porsche is like about 100000 103000 But after we factor in the finance costs, factor in how much the insurance is going to cost, I was like, this car is going to run you 140000 40% more than you originally thought. So you got to keep that in mind. And on top of that, you're trading in a car that you just got and you're taking a big loss. So I was like, Keep in mind, I was like, do you really want to spend $140,000 to $150,000 on a car? And you know what he told me? He was like, I'm going to get it whether you like it or not. So I'd rather you help me get the best deal or I'm going to go off and make a bad decision. So I was, my hands were tied. I had to go help him find the best deal. But when you start making that kind of money, I mean, isn't it natural that you're just going to want to have the toys? Not to mention that... Before keeping up with the Joneses, like now you have new Joneses. The yep. Joneses have a lot more money. So I assume he's associating with other people that have a lot of money. That's the thing. So right? what happens is now that, especially in the athletic world, you know, once you're a baseball player and you're making $500,000, remember, you're on the same team as the guy making $10 million a year. So you're like, man, I'm making 500000 which is not a bad income if you're 24 years old. But you're looking at the guy making $20 million a year like, man, he got a really nice chain. I want a nice chain. He got a really nice car. I want a nice car. But they don't realize he's making a lot more money than this guy. But they're all hanging out in the same circle. So they feel that pressure. Yeah. Well, we could say that about anybody, right? I mean, Anybody. It's just a grander scale. Yeah. That's all it is. It's just on a different scale. So I, you don't have to tell me who the celebrity is, but how did you get the first celebrity? Did you, Was it just by chance? It was, I would say, by luck. So I worked for a firm, and what happened was that there was a client that was part of that firm, and that client's advisor ended up passing away or moving on to a different firm. So what happened was if that happens and they're not part of a team, that client becomes what they call an orphan. There's nobody handling that account. So this client one day called up the office and was like, hey, I this was my advisor. He's not there anymore. Can somebody help me? So this person had a really thick Jamaican accent. A very thick Jamaican accent. Like, even it was hard for me to understand it. And I was, like, the token minority. So they were like, she's Jamaican. You're Spanish. You're going to understand her. You talk to her. <laughs> so I ended up helping this lady. So I helped her. And she used to call me probably once a week. I need this. I need this. I need this. Oh, no problem. No problem. I'll help you. I'll help you. I had no clue who she was because I only dealt with her on the phone. Oh, and you didn't know who she was. I, had no idea. I knew she was a client, but I had no idea who that client was. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea who the children were. So that client one day referred me to one of her kids. I was like, oh, you know what? One of my kids, they need a lot of help. They're going to call you. And I hear that all the time. Sure, yeah. no problem. Yeah. Just have them call me and I'll take care of them. So the the child ended up calling me. It wasn't a child. It was an adult. Ended up calling me. They're like, oh, come to my house. And, you know, I really need some help. So I was like, okay, tell me, give me the address. It was like two hours away from the office. And I was like, do I really want to drive two hours? I was like, I got to do it. So I gave my word that I'm going to help. I'm going to go help. So when I go to their house and they open the door, immediately I was like, damn, this person looks really familiar. But again, I couldn't put two and two together because I'm an idiot sometimes. (laughs) But as soon as I walk in, I see the gold plaques on the walls. I see pictures. And I was like, is this you on like on this wall? They were like, yeah, you didn't know who you were meeting? I was like, I had no clue. Literally, I had no clue. Like, I'm totally blown away. And from that relationship, it took a couple of years to develop because that person ended up, of course, bad advice. 
And after I built the trust and I gave them good advice, that person brought me to their circle. Yeah. And then that's how I built the base. So when you first had that experience and, and that network starts growing, you're like this kid, you know, that grew up in Queens, yeah. right? That, you know, had to work to buy sneakers. Pretty much. I mean, what was going through your head? <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. I was like, man, I'm, I can't believe I'm so lucky to get into this circle. And at the same time, I was like, I can't be a fan because, you know, you got to be professional. And at the same time, I'm like, holy cow, like I'm really geeking out over here because I grew up like listening to this music. So that was a lot of fun. I felt really, really lucky to be in these circles. And one time I went on tour with, you know, one of my clients and they were like, oh, come on tour. We're going to go to the Midwest, you know, for three cities. Come with, come with, come with us to the tour bus. I was like, the tour bus? I was like, sure. I was like, just tell me what I have to do. They're like, oh, just be here in Jersey, and we're going to pick you up. You have to t- We'll take care of everything. So I ended up going on tour for three days, hanging out with like other celebrities, seeing how people would just hang out. Vanilla Ice was like literally right next to me, like eating lunch. And I was like, holy cow, do I remember. Do you feel weird? Like you're sitting there like, what am I doing here? In the beginning – not weird, but more like, oh, man, I have to be on my best behavior. Like, I better not burp too loud because <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a little weird here. So, but after a while, like, you get used to it. You, you start realizing that they're just regular people. Yeah. They really are they just are, regular yeah. people. And a lot of times they just have a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of the money, yes, but it's more the fame. Like, that's the part really? that you have to get used to. Like, really? Yeah, because I've been to dinner with them where people come up to them and like, oh, I, need, I want your autograph. Take a picture. Oh, I love you. And I was like, how do you guys, like, deal with this on a daily basis? And they say this pretty – that's the tough part. They love their fans because without their fans, they wouldn't be where they are. But they say that's the tough part. Like, if they're out with their family and people coming up to them interrupting and say, can I get an autograph? So – but at, once you peel off all those layers, they're just regular people. Yeah. They have their insecurities. They make bad decisions. And they're in a unique position because take someone like yourself – you're a successful attorney. You own a nice firm. How many cousins do you have calling you out of the blue? How many family members or friends do you have calling you out of the blue and say, hey, I need this, I need this, invest yeah. in my business? Yeah. Well, yeah, they want free legal advice or free services. Okay. But, yeah. Yeah, so, I get it. So now imagine that times a 1,000. Yeah. Getting 10 calls a week mm-hmm. from people you don't even know existed. Mm-hmm. So that is a unique position because they're like, okay, I don't know who I'm supposed to trust now. Who do I deal with? So that's why they keep their circle very, very small. And if somebody negative comes into that circle, sometimes they can't see it until it's too late. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, movies about celebrities who got taken by someone in their circle like that. Absolutely. And I've seen it. Like, I've seen it. I've told my clients, like, this person is no good for you. This person is no good for you. But you have to be very careful because you can't say this person is robbing you because now they think you're saying something negative about the other person to either earn their business or something. Yeah, and then potentially you alienate yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. So, So, I mean, most of the time, would you say that they listen to you? I would say it's more than 50% of the time. More than 50%. Because there's been many situations where I've kind of taken advantage of clients and I never do. And I've had clients test me without my knowledge. Really? Say, oh, I'm going to throw this in the mix to see if he takes the bait. And I didn't know until, like, afterwards. And I was like, nah, but I always do the right thing. Yeah. To me, the relationship is way more important than any dollar. I feel like there's karma, too. Absolutely. You know, that that stuff, I think, comes back to you. But um, on the other side, though, when you are – 
famous and you have all these people that <laughs> I'm are not like, famous. well, you're not famous, but the people that you, you have some yes, special insight yes. to it because you've seen it. Um, what about the people that kind of get used to yes people? Like everybody saying, telling them how great they are and, you know, never telling That's them hard. when they have a bad idea. That is really difficult because it sometimes it can get to the point. Again, I'm not in their shoes, but I've seen it where they're surrounded by so many yes people that they're like, oh, I'm. I can walk on water. Like, I can't do no wrong. So when you tell them, eh, that might not be a great idea, they look at you as like, oh, you must be a hater. You just, yeah. you, you don't know what you're talking about. All these 10 other people said yes, but you're saying no. So I always ask clients whether they're famous and whether they're not. It's like, okay, if your child was asking you for this advice or someone really close to you was asking you for this advice, what advice would you give them? If it was your kid coming to you asking for that advice, what kind of advice would you tell him? And then good. that is what makes him think twice. Like, okay, maybe it's not such a great idea. Yeah, I think that's smart. That's a good way to look at it. Because, you know, I, I could be a nobody. But it's like, okay, ask yourself the same question. Well, also, I mean, what do you have to gain, too, at some point? That's what I tell him. I was like, I have nothing to gain. I was like, I want you to do well. I was like, if you do well, I do well. So the better you do the better we all do here. So yeah. I was like, I have nothing to gain for it by giving you bad advice. But isn't it interesting that you grew up without the money and here you are, you've evolved and so now here you are telling wealthy people, you know, <laughs> how to how to mind their money. Yeah, that has always been very interesting to me. And I tell them, I tell a lot of my clients, like, you know, when I get really close to them, I was like, I grew up, when I was five, six, seven years old, we were seven of us in like a one bedroom. That's wow. tight. And yeah. I mean, not seven children. I mean, like adults. It was a lot of us in like a one little bedroom, sleeping in living rooms and all over the place. So I was like, I know how it was to grow up with, you know, very limited beans. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all I want you to do is make smart decisions because I have... The way I look at it is, like, if I help you make smart decisions and then you go back to your community, whatever community you came from, you go back to com your community and you teach one or two kids some smart decisions, hopefully one of them will pick up the advice and say, okay, I'm going to do what you did. And then they go back to their community, and that's how you strengthen the communities around you. Money's yeah. great. Don't get me wrong. Money's great, but, man, you could blow through money in a month. Yeah. I, I th they do think it's all relative. You know, yes, I was absolutely. just talking to someone the other day how – some people think nothing of going out and spending three hundred dollars on dinner. Correct. But to some people, that's oh, that's that's only three hundred bucks. What's that? That's change. But then to someone else, you know, that that's their grocery money for the entire Absolutely. month. Absolutely. So it really is relative. And just to satisfy my own perverse curiosity, <laughs> because I'm not one of those famous rich people. Do they? What do they manage on their own in terms of their money? Like, is you know. Like, Brad Pitt isn't, like, writing out his electric bill check. No, no. So a lot <laughs> of them have business managers. Um, depending on who the client is, if they have so much going on, they'll have business managers. And their business managers are in charge of making sure their bills are paid, making sure any premiums are paid, that all their bills are paid. Because a lot of these people have multiple homes. They don't have just one house. They got three houses. So they got to worry about three different sets of bills. They have, they might have multiple children. They might be going out of the country, and they got to get their taxes paid. So they usually have an organization that will take care of all of this for them. So that means that that person has access to their, a bank account. Yes, it's usually just to view the account or and pay bills, like get checks written. 
So I always tell every single client, the ones that have so much going on that they don't know, I always tell them like, hey, once your business manager is done with their monthly bills, tell them to send us the report and we'll take a look at it. Then we'll know like, hey, you're spending way too much on your credit card. You're spending way too much on this. And we always call things out. I've had clients where I do that for them. And then I will say, hey, this person is charging you a little bit too much. Let's let's just dig in a little deeper. And then you find out they're charging... They're trying to get reimbursements for clothes that they're buying like their girlfriend. Like it has nothing to do with the client. They're trying to do their own personal shopping. And that's the business manager doing that. Correct. Yeah, because you sometimes you hear things in the news about someone who just got completely ripped off by their business manager mm-hmm. or, you know, somebody in their inner circle. And not being in a situation like that, I don't. Uh, it's kind of hard for me to understand how that happens. It comes down to trust. So that's why I always say it's good to have two different sets of people look at your work because they're not connected. Yeah. Because if you have your business manager doing your basic bill paying and things of that nature, you can have somebody else kind of double checking that work. Not everybody needs two organizations because a lot of times people that are doing business management, they're paying five bills a month, six bills a month. It's not a lot. But the thing is, these people are so busy flying all over the place. They don't sit down and say, I'm going to pay my bill. Yeah. Well, I could see if you have, um, you know, if you have several houses and and like, oh, let's talk about Kylie Jenner. I mean, I don't know how many houses she has, how many cars (laughs) she has. She's running a business. Um, You know, I think um, I read Britney Spears, who I guess they call it a conservatorship in California, was spending like, you know, a small salary on massages every year. Um, So there's a business manager that's paying all of that stuff. Absolutely. So someone like a Kylie Jenner and the entire Kardashian clan, they have multiple organizations looking over their money because they have so many businesses spanned in so many different places. Not just the U.S. They're huge in Asia. They're huge in Europe. So they have so many businesses, so many houses, so many moving parts. They have multiple organizations watching over their money. And who Kim uses might not be the same person that Kylie uses. And who, you know, Courtney uses might not be the same as the other one. I forgot her name. But they probably use different organizations. And the mom is most likely overseeing everything. Like, okay, let's make sure nobody's robbing yeah. us over here. Yeah, I mean, I would think at some point when you start making enough and doing enough, it's sort of becomes keeping track of it all to make sure that my the people in my inner circle aren't ripping me off. Absolutely. And that's so important. I tell people all the time, like, if you're making so much you know, money and you have so much expenses, because what happens is if you make a lot of money, your lifestyle goes up. So when your lifestyle goes up, your expenses go up. So it's always great to see a monthly report, whether you're making 100000 or $100 million, Do a monthly report to say, okay, this is how much money came into my household this month. This is how much money left my household this month. Did I save money or did I spend money? So you come, you might say, hey, I put $2,000 in my 401k, but I spent $2,500 on my credit card. Yeah. So you lost money that month. So that way you can see, okay, is my net worth going up or is it going down? We did that for a client not too long ago. Well, not, maybe, you know, over a year ago. And as we were going through the expenses, we come to find out he spent like a million dollars in audio equipment for his house. What? I'm like, dude, you, what are you spending a million dollars in audio equipment for? And he's like, I spent a million dollars? He was shocked. Well, yeah. I mean, I can see how that can happen. Maybe not a million dollars, but I can see how if you just go out shopping or you... Let's a good example of Starbucks. A lot of people don't go get their latte every day. And <laughs> I think you don't realize unless you actually look at your bill, how much do I really spend every month on Starbucks? Absolutely. Let me tell you, I always tell people, hey, 
look at the last three months of your expenses. You don't know what your budget is because I usually send people like a spreadsheet for their budget, their monthly budget. A lot of times they don't know except for their fixed. They know how much their mortgage is, their light, car, things yeah. like that nature. But they don't know the other side of it. And they don't know how much they spend going out eating, Starbucks, buying clothes. They have no idea how much that is. So like, no problem. 99% of the time they say, I don't know. So it's like, no problem. Give me all your credit cards, all your debit cards. Give me all the last three months of statements, and we're going to tally it up for you. So then when we show them, like, on a monthly basis how much they're spending, they almost fall off their chair because they can't, they can't believe it. Yeah. Yeah, it adds up. Absolutely. And then they, if they're using credit cards, they're like, oh, I spent 2000 here, but I'm only going to spend, you know, $200 a month paying it off. Well, do you have any? Yeah, that's my model. Do you have? <laughs> you do you have any opinion about cash? You know whether people should carry around cash and just use that, like cash in their pocket. Yeah, like is cash king? Well, cash is always king when it comes to buying opportunities. I will say that cash in your pocket doesn't earn you anything. So, if if you are tough when it comes to budgeting yourself, I tell you to carry cash. If you're like, hey, I don't know how much to spend. I don't know. Like, I can't control myself. Say, okay, you know what? You want to go shopping? Take $1,000 in cash. That's going to be your budget. The moment that $1,000 is over, you got to go home or walk out of that store. That way you put them on a plan where they're like, oh, I'm giving myself a budget. Or don't go into the store. Or don't (laughs) go into the store. And it's happened. Yeah. So, but if you use credit cards, then you're like, oh, I'm, I got $10,000. I'll just pay it off over a year. Yeah, I know. It is tempting to do that. Um, but I, I've been listening to different podcasts talking about how you can really live with no debt. I mean, is that something you encourage your clients to do? Absolutely. Or at least understand the relationship between good debt and bad debt. You have to understand that relationship. Like credit cards to me is like probably the worst debt. You need a little tiny, and I mean the tiniest of credit card debt just to have a good score. But you should that should not be your day-to-day. Credit cards is like, I'm going to put gas in my car and I'm going to pay it off at the end of the month. Yeah. I'm sort of living by the philosophy now that if you have to use the credit card to buy it, you can't afford it. That's exactly accurate. That's and exactly it has accurate. deterred me from buying things. See? Certain things, yeah. And so you're the perfect example. You're like, okay, man, if I have to put it on the credit card, that means I can't afford it. And you've probably wanted a nice pair of shoes. Oh, those Louboutins look amazing. I want to buy them. But you hold back. You're like, I'm going to wait two months. Yeah. And have and, the cash. And how it. important is it really? Because I have found, too, that when I do say no to myself but with stupid things <laughs> like that, I don't think about it again. I really don't. And then I realized, well, if I had bought all of those things, they would just be in my closet now and on my credit card. And how important was it really? So, you know how social media, they say, is like a big addiction now? Yeah. So when you post something on social media, whether it's your Instagram, your Twitter, you know, whatever social media you use, every time you get a like on that picture, it, it gives you the tiniest shot of dopamine. And you're like, man, this feels good. This feels good. This feels good. So same thing with shopping. You go and you buy a nice pair of shoes, a nice blouse, whatever you're buying, man, you're like, you walk out with that bag, brand new clothes, it feels really good. It does, right? That dopamine shot came to your brain, you're like, ah feel amazing but then you get home you throw it in your closet and it has a tag and then two weeks later you're like man i could have really used those 200 dollars for something completely different it's really true and i have found that i wear the same stuff over and over again anyway so why do i have this big closet full of clothes the majority of us do i do the same thing so now i tell myself if i'm gonna buy this i really have to use it until i'm gonna ship it to the dominican republic because all my old clothes i just ship it overseas and send it to my family um but that's what i do but 
I always ask myself more than once, like, man, do I really want those shoes? How bad? Yeah, how we'll, bad do we'll I really come want next those. week and I'm going to buy it. Yeah. And I, like you said, nine times out of ten, you don't. Yeah, it's true. Um, so I want to go back to, you know, the home life and, and your childhood. So you had friends that you grew up with. Mm-hmm. How many mm-hmm. of them have sort of followed your path? Or are a lot of them, did they become doormen or, you know, work in a restaurant? I will say very few of them came down my path. <clears throat> Most of them went down the union path because they're like, you know, safe. And to me, it's sad because I was like, I have so many friends that were extremely intelligent, are intelligent. I'm mean, not say were, are intelligent and can do so much more, but they fall into the trap. They're like, hey, you know what? This is where I grew up. I need something safe. So they're like, I'm going to do my nine to five or whatever, nine to nine job. And I'm going to just keep it as safe as possible. As far as the ones that went, I'm not even calling it white collar. I'm just going to say that started a business or tried to do something different, less than 10%. Do you find it hard to relate to them now? That is a good question. Sometimes, yes, it is a little difficult because my mind is always like I have like these massive dreams. Where I'm like, I'm mm-hmm. not trying to change a country. I'm like, I'm really trying to bridge in an educational gap between this group and that group so we can all be on the same level p- field. Where, so when I speak to some of these people like this, like, man, this is what I'm trying to do, they're just like, all right, that's cool, let's go get a drink. Like, they, yeah. to they them, it's just like they don't really care. They don't think it applies to them. Because I think I've spent a lot of time just kind of thinking about my own evolution growing up and becoming what I am today. And I love stories like yours. I <laughs> interview people all the time that came from, you know, that grew up poor or grew up, um, maybe they were the first ones in their family to go to college and they really did something like so much grander than what anybody else in their family did. And it's not to put anybody down. Not it's just that you broke broke the mold. And I think a lot of times there's sort of this cycle. I call it the cycle of poverty. Absolutely. Which it doesn't exactly apply to you, but it's sort of like it. Like I said earlier, you can inherit a mindset, and it's like I really commend you because you broke out of that. And I think it's really hard for a lot of people to even conceive that they could be something completely different than what their parents were. Oh, it's and that's one thing I'm always pushing. Like if somebody tells me if you're a ten year old and you're like, man, I want to be a movie star, go for it. Yeah. You want to be a movie star? You, you can do it. You want to be this? You want to be that? I don't care what you want to be. You just got to work really, really hard at it. And I, I like to use The Rock as an example. So I was like, you know, The Rock was literally poor. He tried to make it for football, didn't make it. He was dead poor. He was depressed. He wasn't going to make it anywhere. And now the guy's the biggest box office star for the last couple of years. Yeah. Not, not, like, it's not like he made it and he's just like, oh, that's it. He went up and came down. He works harder than anybody you can even imagine. So I was like, all you got to do is just work hard. And that's one thing that I think the younger generation is, it's hard to instill in them. Because it's like, you got to work. Like If you want to do something, yeah. you got to work. Oh, yeah. It just doesn't happen magically. It does not happen magically. So we have about five minutes left. I want you to tell me who is your ideal client. Because if there's anybody that's listening that would love to work with you, who's your ideal client? So my ideal client is anybody that really would like to learn. 
someone that is coachable say hey this is this is what i have and this is where i want to be and then that way we can create a roadmap so as far as the basic client is you know anyone that of course has assets anybody that wants to review their financial plans and says hey this is where i am now and this is where i want to be in a couple of years how can we get there though i will say those are my ideal clients it's i'm very very open to giving information so anybody that wants to learn is i will say i'm more than willing to help so what would you say to people because i encounter this a lot and i'm always <laughs> harping I, and this was something i had to learn myself is that everybody could use a financial planner absolutely i think there's sort of a perception that well i don't have a lot of money i'm not wealthy what do i need that for i'm spending every dime i, I get on you know rent and food yeah so i get that a lot as well so i tell people like money's relative Money is really relative because I know guys that are worth a hundred million and they think they're broke, and they're like, "Oh, I'm worth a hundred million. My friends are worth four hundred million. My my yacht is the smallest one on the block." But then you talk to another guy that's worth fifty million and he's like, "I'm broke." Then you talk to a guy that's worth a hundred thousand and he's like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm doing okay." So everyone thinks yeah, they're broke. That's so true. Everyone thinks they're broke. I'm meeting with a guy pretty soon that makes twelve million dollars a year and he's like, "Man, I'm broke. I don't I have nothing." What are, what are we going to talk for if I'm only making $12 million? How can it, why does he think he's broke? I can't even wrap my brain around that. Because, again, the people he's hanging out with are making $20 million a year. So he is trying to keep up with this guy that's making $20 million with his twelve, and that's never going to work. So it's comparison syndrome. Oh, happens so often. And I always tell people, I was like, be like a swimmer. Like, swimmers are not looking to the side. Swimmers are just trying to yeah. get to their goal. Oh, I love that. That's I what it is. That. Same thing with horses. They put blinders on the horses because the moment you look to your left or your right, you're going to trip and fall. It's so true. So just focus on your goal and keep going straight. Yes. And if guess what? If your circle wants to give you a hard time because you don't have the latest shoes or the latest car or the latest whatever, you need a new circle. Yeah. That, well, so many good sound bites here, <laughs> Danny. <laughs> I guess I got lucky. So you you really have to be around people that are going to help you grow. Anyone that wants to motivate you, help you grow, and have big ideas, those are the people you want to be around. You don't care about the guy that – like, I don't even watch sports. I work with athletes, and they talk to me about baseball, and I'm like, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't even watch sports. But I understand the dollar sign of it, and they appreciate that. They're like, you don't watch baseball, but you're here to help me? I, I appreciate that. So when someone comes to you and they say, well, I need to make, uh, let's let's use me. I'll say, I need to make 300000 Okay. Will you kind of dig deeper to see, well, why do you, where do you get that number from? Like, Absolutely. why do you think you need that? Absolutely. The very first step is finding out your why. So when you talk to people about retirement, like, oh, how much money do you want to retire? I, I need a million dollars. Why do you need a million dollars? A million dollars, it sounds nice. But what is that million dollars going to do for you? What is it going to offer you? What do you really, really, really need? So I ask questions to get deep down as to why do you need 300000 Tell me about your mm -hmm. life. Do you know how much 3000 is actually going to net you every month? How's your lifestyle going to change? Let's say I gave you 300000 tomorrow. What are you going to change? So yeah. I like to get really deep down. And I want them to understand, like, okay, why do I need 300000 Oh, maybe I saw it on TV show one time. And I feel like I need 300000 But I want them to understand what they really need. Yeah, I love that. Well, I have worked with you in the past. I've always found you to be very helpful. And you know everybody. 
<laughs> I do like, not know everybody. <laughs> I wish I did. You do. I mean, if you if anybody needs any kind of professional <laughs> or somebody who has a specialized knowledge, I feel like you always know who. I know a guy. That that's you. You're the I know a guy guy. <laughs> Building your network is so important. It is the most important thing you can ever develop. Forget about you know income is important. I'm not gonna say forget about your income, but the people yeah. you know. That's going to turn into your net worth. Yeah, I'm finding that to be true. So tell us how we can reach you. Should we call you, email you? You can call me or email me. Um, I My email is pretty long, so I'll probably just give you my number. Um, you can call me at 212-408-9585. Again, that's 212-408-9585. That's probably the best way to reach me. Thank you, Denny. Um, I really appreciate it, and I hope that my listeners will reach out to you because I know that you have a lot of good knowledge to share with them. And thank you for listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previn. We'll see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>